Okay, we're going to be reading today verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 through 9. This is what the Word of God says. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you today, Lord, acknowledging the great truths of your word. And Lord, we ask for a great blessing today as we read your scripture publicly as you have instructed us to do, the public reading of scripture and then the public proclamation of scripture. We pray, God, as your word is preached, that you would be pleased to attend to that preaching and that by your spirit, Lord, that you might sanctify us, renew us, that you may transform us. And Lord, speak to us in our heart through your word. Give us conviction. Make us men and women of conviction and men of women of principled lives. Make us men and women that love your word, treasure it. Lord, men and women that view your commandments with a great delight and not with, Lord, a burdensome task. We don't see your commandments as a burden, Lord, because we love your law. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we look at the truths contained here in this passage of Scripture and that you would help me, God, to communicate to your church properly what your word is saying. Lord, we thank you and bless you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today I want to talk to you about uh, the blessedness of giving, the blessedness of giving. But before I do that, be sure to turn off my cell phone. Um, they tell you to do that kind of thing in a theater, you know. Uh, better do that in church, especially if you're the pastor and you're preaching. Um, but you never know, you know, I have the phone in my pocket because you just never know. I've gotten some really interesting texts just before I go up to the pulpit. Um, anyway, back to the sermon. <laughs> the blessedness of giving. What an incredible section of Scripture. The more I dived into this passage of Scripture, the more I realized, wow, I really am not thinking adequately enough about giving to the local church, giving to God, giving to the ministry, furthering the gospel with my finances. I am simply not cognizant enough about the benefits and the duties and the honor and the blessings that come with giving. It's truly become an area of Christian life, especially today, that is either misunderstood or is not taught on very much, especially in good churches. Oftentimes, it isn't taught as much because, well, a lot of times people have a certain timidity about them because of the way it's been abused. But really, if we have a biblical perspective of giving, that we realize that giving and money and the whole area of finances is nothing to be afraid of at all. As a matter of fact, we should look forward to it with great anticipation. And one of the reasons why is because it makes you an object of God's blessing. I don't know about you, 
but I want to be an object of God's blessing. I want to experience the blessed life of Psalm 1, let's say, and then the rest of the Psalms that follow. But in order to do that, we have to be obedient to God's Word. In order to do that, we have to follow the principles that God has given us laid out in His Word. And in this passage here, we're looking at yet another text where Paul gives his advice. You remember going all the way back then to verse 10. He, he says, look, I give my opinion. He's not commanding them authoritatively that they ought to contribute to this Jerusalem collection. But he's giving just his advice, his, his wise advice to a church, his financial advice, and pointing out to them that in reality this participation is an opportunity for you to advance. It's to your advantage. That's what he says in chapter 8, verse 10. And so now he's going to bring out more principles as to why this is to your advantage. And so I want to give you those principles one by one. Principle number one, the principle of sowing and reaping. The principle of sowing and reaping is deeply rooted in the Scriptures. Paul, as he's talking about here, sowing and reaping, he's probably pulling from an Old Testament passage out of Proverbs. As a matter of fact, this whole section, if you go all the way down to verse 10, is actually filled with Old Testament theology. Uh, in this verse, verse 6, he's pulling from Proverbs 22, verse 8, and uh, we'll, we'll look at that. But in verse 7, he actually pulls, again, from a different, a different part of that verse in the Septuagint, talking about verse, uh, uh, Proverbs 22, 8 there in verse 7, and we'll talk about that. In verse 9, he's actually pulling from Psalm 112, and in verse 10, he's alluding to Isaiah 55. So as you can see right there, Paul's mind is just dominated with the Old Testament, which to him at that time was called the Scriptures. His mind was informed by Scripture regarding all of these principles of giving. And here he states this whole issue of sowing and reaping. If you know anything about the principle of sowing and reaping, you know that in Scripture it's used broadly. It's used for the different contexts. It's used for different issues. Uh, positively, we have the, the parable of the sower. We have the evangelist who goes and sows the Word of God. You have negatively the command not to sow to the flesh because if you sow to the flesh, you will reap the whirlwind. So just this basic principle, we can say this cause and effect principle of sowing and reaping. But here, he grounds us in this principle of sowing and reaping with regard to our finances. And he's saying that this issue of sowing and reaping has two potentials. Either you do it, you do it sparingly so that you could expect to reap sparingly, or you do it bountifully so that you could expect to reap bountifully. And I would ask us today, which is it in our life? When we think of our own finances and our own giving to the local church, because certainly this principle applies just to the normative giving of the church as well, certainly Paul is not excluding the normative giving of the local church when he envisions the scope of this text. And so to us, we should ask ourselves, where are we in regards to this? When we give, do we have a settled conviction in our heart and mind and conscience? I have given bountifully. I have given as this whole context, chapter 8 and 9. 
as, it, as it, the whole context demonstrates, have I given generously so that in my heart I can resolve to say, I am a generous, bountiful giver. And um, if you do, then you can expect this to be, therefore, to your advantage, precisely the way that Paul is telling the Corinthians. And it is primarily spiritual in nature. Because you're sowing to spiritual things. When you give financially, your motive for giving is not money. It is not to say, well, if I give this much money, I get this much money. No, if that's your motive, you've misunderstood the whole context of this section of Scripture and the theology of the Bible. You are to have a spiritual perspective even when monetary replenishment is Bountiful. When God blesses you back monetarily, materialistically, when He gives you these resources, you are to view that spiritually. Let me, let me uh, read to you. Go to Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 17 for a similar, pretty much a parallel context to this. It's parallel because Paul here is again not talking about the normative giving of the church, but he's talking about a special gift for him this time. This was a gift for him, not for the Jerusalem saints, but for him personally on the mission field and even imprisoned. He says, speaking about that, he says, not that I seek the gift itself. In other words, he's not looking for the money itself. It's not an end to itself. Brothers and sisters, giving is not an end in and of itself. He says, but I seek the profit, and I think he obviously uses a play on words there. He, uses, he says, I seek the profit that increases to your account, that, that, that language of accounting, that language of financial dealing. He says, but I have received everything in full, and, I've been, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an, accept, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Think about that. Well-pleasing to God. So he shifts the focus of giving to worship because for Paul, perspective is everything. Do you view your money as worship? Do you view your giving as an act of worship, acceptable worship to the Lord? I tell you, when you begin to see things that way, it will change things. And the, very, and the principle here will begin to intensify. And so I don't want to give it all away here, verse 6, okay? So we're going to keep going because I think these principles are going to build one on top of another. But the principle here is simple. And especially if you live in an agrarian culture, a farming culture, the way that most first century people did, you would understand very simply what it means to Sow sparingly and reap sparingly, to sow bountifully and to reap bountifully. It was the lazy farmer who would have small, uh, a small harvest at the end of all of his labors. But it was the hard-working farmer, the diligent farmer, the one who sowed broad and bountifully that could expect to have a big harvest at the end of that labor. And so... In that way, he moves us forward to the next issue here. Knowing that it's an issue of worship, knowing that it's an issue of perspective, he then says in our second principle this, and, and the principle that I entitled the principle of glad giving. You know how I like to match words and rhyme and, you know, it's just good for symmetry. I, I'm kind of one of those guys, okay? Um, just be happy I'm not like a Puritan, okay? Because my principle would probably be a paragraph, 
Okay? Uh, but verse 7 says, each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's an interesting doctrine, isn't it? God loves a cheerful giver. Well, if I'm a Christian, doesn't God love me already? Uh, most commentators pointed out that this brings upon a special love of God. That in a special way, it is especially delightful to God to see His children, to be generous, be a glad giver. That is certainly fuel for obedience to me. Because for the righteous man, the righteous woman, nothing brings you greater joy than to know that you are pleasing to God. Nothing. And so Paul begins by saying, look, the very first thing is, you got to take ownership of your giving. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. There's the, there's the language of intentionality. There is the language of engagement. There is the language of responsibility. You have a responsibility and an obligation upon yourself to know yourself, to be, to be aware of what you're doing spiritually. That's very interesting, isn't it? Each one has his own duty, his own responsibility. You play a part, and you have stock in this gift, in this contribution, and you have a part to play. What will you do with the responsibility God has allotted to you? It's interesting, so that it presupposes a certain level of spiritual maturity. It presupposes a certain level of spiritual discernment where the believer is able to make wise and righteous decisions. Now, Paul focuses on the heart here when he says that he does this. He purposes in his heart, and he does this not grudgingly or under compulsion. So, first, he begins to deal with these issues negatively, telling us how not to do this. We don't do this grudgingly. The word grudgingly here, interestingly enough, is the Greek word lupe, which just means grief. Grief. It's translated mostly grief in the New Testament. There, there shouldn't arise, the first impulse of a generous heart should not be that of grief, sorrow, reluctance. I, th I like that translation. Reluctance. You shouldn't be doing it grudgingly. It shouldn't be a burden to you. You shouldn't look at the prospect of participation in giving as a burden or a threat. That's not the proper perspective. And the reason why is because of the second issue, is because it shouldn't also be done with compulsion. The word compulsion just means to be put under pressure, to be put under pressure. And obviously here, pressure in a negative sense, to be pressured, manipulated, to be, to be, uh, 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 you know, to be ripped off, to be put into some kind of con scheme by someone. Now, this is obviously all over the place, right, today in the church. You turn on your, your television, and there before you is just an array of false teachers ready to suck up all your money. We have a great prophecy in store for you. There's a great healing in store for you. There's a great blessing in store for you. There's a magic handkerchief in store for you. All you need to do is just sow your seed. Give your money. Get your credit card out. I don't care if you're dying of cancer. 
I don't care if you can't pay your next bill. You better tithe to this ministry. You better give and you better sow your seed if you really want to be blessed by God. That type of underhanded, shameful manipulation sadly inundates the church today. And so many people are so undiscerning that they so readily and in a in an unbelievable, gullible way. They just give to those kind of ministries. And so the time for this sermon is now. The time for this sermon has never been greater with so many false teachers all around all the time. And so it shouldn't be done under pressure, under manipulation at all. This gift was to be freely given. That is the greatest aspect of financial giving in the church, I believe. That this should flow out of your heart freely. It's beautiful. And it should be done not for the purpose of compulsion, but for reason of edification. Reason for upbuilding, for, for the purpose of upbuilding and edifying the church. Let me take you to another passage. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. It's a fascinating text on giving here, okay? It's kind of a, if you read it over quick, you may miss all of the principles and all of the points that Paul makes here in Galatians 6, 6. He says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So this is dealing with financial uh, remuneration in the church now, okay? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What an interesting context to bring that into, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And the reason I think he brings that up there, if I can just bring in a side note here, is because he's trying to get the Galatians to think spiritually, to be spiritually oriented, to think, to, to not forget the spiritual things, the spiritual matters on their way to all their financial dealings in their life. Don't forget, don't leave these things undone. And he says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, interesting correlation, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What's the point? That there's a principle here. There's a principle of sowing to the things of the flesh, and there's the things of the Spirit. And the way you reap to either one of those will result in either a harvest of iniquity or a harvest of righteousness. That's the way it works. And then he says, let us not lose heart in doing good. Sometimes that's not easy to sell in America. What do you mean? I just write the check, put it in the box, and that's it. I was reading Randy Alcorn this week because his um, book, uh, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, has, is really good, deals with all these issues, okay? And he talked about how in the third world, you think about how some of these things might land on you if you're living in the third world where you're making $9 a month. And the pastor is telling you, give generously. <laughs> where you might give 50 cents, and that was a whole day's worth of labor right there. You know? And, and, and what does it look like to give generously in the third world? Well, it may mean that you give your extra pair of sandals. It may mean that you give a person your extra shirt. And that may mean generosity for that context. And so we, we're so quick to assume an American culture. But globally, okay, this will land on people in a different way. That's why I think people need encouragement 
in order to be faithful in giving. He says, do not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We've been giving to the same church for you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And what's Paul's exhortation? Don't abandon the pattern. And don't undermine the pattern either. Don't look at it as a drudge. Don't grow weary in the midst of doing it. God loves faithfulness. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't abandon that pattern because God will reward you for it eschatologically above all. And it's coming. Don't grow weary. You will be rewarded. So then, verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Do I give my money to the poor? Yes. Do I contribute to, let's say, humanitarian aid? Do I give my money to tornado victims in Oklahoma? Yes. If that's how God leads you and that's where you have a conscience that wants to do that, you are free to do it. But look at Paul. And especially, he uses that qualifying comparative clause, to those who are of the household of faith. Have your priorities straight. There's nothing wrong with feeding people and clothing people and sheltering people, but keep your priorities straight. God wants you first and foremost to be church-oriented, church-focused. Take care of your family. He uses that word household. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have to have our priorities straight. Then positively, he says this, going back to Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver. I just love that. I love to hear what God loves. It doesn't happen all the time. So this statement, just I just sat and soaked and thought about all the implications. God loves. But we know, for God so loved the world, so it must be that he, Paul is trying to say, look, a special blessing is in store for those who cheerfully give, are cheerfully generous. I wonder why. I wonder if it has, to do, has anything to do with the fact that you are like God when you give that way. I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that God sees aspects of his own attributes in you when you give generously the way that he gave generously. He is the most generous giver of all, after all, and he gave cheerfully. It was his joy to give us his son. It was his joy. Not that it wasn't a sacrifice. It co- the, the cost was infinite, but the joy was also infinite. And so we are much like God when we give with this proper motive, this cheerful, the word hilarion. You, you guys hear that word? Or it's hilaron, where we get the word hilarious, okay? God wants a, a giver that's abounding with joy, jubilant to give. I love it. Now, principle number three is the principle that I see here in verse 8. And that is the principle of abundance. But now it's coming back to us. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. And I love the way Paul qualifies things, don't you? Big parenthetical statements. 
you may have an abundance for every good work. Paul stresses God's omnipotence, his ability, his dunamis, when he says, God is able. I wonder why he did that. Maybe because when we're talking about the realm of money and finances, the very first thing that we're tempted to be fearful of is how will my resources be replenished? How will I be repaid? How will I, how will I know that I'll be taken care of if I become generous in my giving? And Paul says, look to God and His ability, not your own. See, that, that's a fun, that fear is a reaction to a fundamental disposition that is all wrong in us. The idea that we supply our needs. The idea that we are the ones that produce our goods. It comes from God, brothers and sisters. In Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, one of the indictments that the prophet makes to the people is that they forgot that it was God who gave them their silver, their gold, their wool, their flax, you name it. It was God who provided all of those things for them. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and we, if we are righteous, we will be okay with it. We will resign ourselves to God's sovereign care of our lives there are also three things I want to point out here in this text because he says that God is able to provide for us abundantly. Now, let's look a little bit closer here at this, at this idea because I think here is a promise for all of us. I don't care where you're at. I don't care what status. I don't care what, where you're at on the, on, the, on the bar of income, whatever. There, there, there is a promise in store here for all of us no matter where we're at financially speaking. Let me point out three things, and that is that first, God provides graciously, and there I zero in on that word grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you. You want to say, well, God, where's the money? <laughs> grace abounding, that's great, but you're asking me to give money, and you're saying you're able to make a grace abound. What happened to the money? <laughs> I don't know about you, but grace is more important than money. It is from the grace of God that our money comes. It is from the grace of God that all of our material possessions come. It is from the grace of God that our house rests over our head every night. You know how I know that. There was a house right down the street from my neighborhood, struck by lightning. The whole house exploded. The roof on the house blew up. And the house next to it had its windows blown out. I have a picture on it on my phone. Kids, you want to see it afterwards? Come and, come and check it out. I couldn't believe it. Lightning bolt caused the attic to explode. And the house had to be condemned, torn down, and now it's back to a foundation. That's just, that's just so amazing. And God could do that. There are thousands of lightning strikes during a storm. Why doesn't God take out my house? Well, he might one day. And see, that's, a, that's just an understanding of the sovereignty of God. That God in His sovereignty get, dispenses His grace to me as He wills, as He sees fit. What is the famous words of Job? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
he provides graciously, he also provides sufficiently so that we can never complain, ever. He says, so that always having all sufficiency in everything. The word sufficiency means adequate. What you have from God is adequate, even if it's not as much as the person next to you has. It's still adequate. God didn't say he was going to give you what other people have. God promises to give you what is adequate for you according to his own sovereign wisdom for your life and mine. Praise the Lord. And he does this all the time. I like the ESV here. For all times. Because he uses the word always. For all times. And I take that to mean all seasons. Every season of your life. Every, no matter what season you're coming into, no matter if the kids are coming, the kids are going, no matter if the income is low, the income is high, times of plenty, times of, you know, need, God at all seasons is able to make you adequate, sufficient, and providing for us. Thank you, Lord. And lastly, God provides intentionally. So this is what I'm saying. Point number three which is the principle of abundance, has three points under it, okay? God provides graciously, God provides sufficiently, and God provides intentionally. Now, I say that to say this. As I was thinking, I was writing this, so I was like, wow, three points under point three, yikes. But you see, I make these little points up so that you can turn around and tell them to your kids. Moms, you can remember three points. Some of you moms put together recipes that have like 20 points. So I know that you can remember three easy points, right? And if you notice anything, a pattern in my sermon, one, two points, three points, sometimes four. That's because I want you to be able to tell your children in the car on the way home, do you remember what pastor was talking about today? Remember there was three points that were real easy. Boom, boom, boom. You should be able to do that. Are you listening? Are you writing it down? Dads. You don't do family devotions in your house? Take my points that I've given you during the week. Repeat them to your children. This is a way to catechize your kids in the Word of God. And just speak over those things at the dinner table and say, do you remember what we learned today in church? It was three easy things. Remember, guys? Boom, boom, boom. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. God blesses us intentionally. That's the last one. There is an influx of wealth. There, there can be an influx of wealth and material prosperity and sufficiency, but it's designed for an outflow, an outflow of good deeds so that you might have abundance for every good deed. There's, as a matter of fact, there's two purpose clauses here. He says, so that always, and then that you, for every good deed. And see, to me, I know grammar to you might not be a burning issue, but to me, I get really excited about that because God is really trying to emphasize something to us here, that the, the giving that he gives us or the, 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 the abundance that he gives us has a purpose, purpose. It's so that we will think spiritually, so that we will turn around and do good deeds with what he gives us. I guess as a side note, let me just bring this in, and that is that as we do our good deeds, how are we to do them? Are we to do it like the, the Pharisees who paraded around their good deeds, blew their trumpets, and put their money in the coffer, whatever? No. 
We are to do it quietly. Randy Alcorn, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, has 11 guidelines for giving. <laughs> 11 guidelines. I don't know if you know, I remember that, but I, I really appreciated the last one. He says, when you give, give quietly. I love that. So that there is a holy anonymity to your giving. There is a, there is a, a spiritual secrecy to your giving. I love that. It's just between you and God. Beautiful. And I think that's the way God wants generous, mature givers to function. And let me give you the last principle, and this is the longest point. I can't believe it because I know that I'm running short on time. Principle number four is this, the principle of the righteous man. Look quickly now at verse 9. As it is written, I love this, Paul, I love this, Paul grounding everything in Scripture. Don't you like that? I love it. He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So he grounds us in Psalm 112. Turn to Psalm 112. Because we've got to appreciate the whole psalm to get the life of the blessed man. I so long to preach through the Psalms, and I will, I will. When, I don't know, but I will. The Psalms are glorious. And Psalm 1 is the, Psalm 1 is like the, the plumb line that sets in order the rest of the Psalms. You know what Psalm 1 teaches us? There's only two kinds of people in the world. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. There is a child of God and there's a child of the devil. There's a child, there are sons of God and there are sons of wrath. There are saints and sinners. And then there are saints who, there's sinners who are saints. Godly, ungodly, lovers of God, haters of God, friends of God, enemies of God. See, the word of God is black and white. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. No middle ground. No indecisive ignorance. Everyone is on a side. What side are you on? But the Psalm 1 teaches us what is the right side to be on. The right side is the righteous side. The side of the righteous man. Why is this so important? Because you have a blessed life, according to the Bible. Not because bad things won't happen to you. That's not what having a blessed life means. However, general principle, yes, there is blessing in store for you, even monetary blessing, financial blessing, material blessing in store for you because of your righteousness. And I think partly because as a righteous man, you make righteous decisions that lead to righteous living, righteous consequences. You're not going around making foolish decisions all the time. And you say, oh, but the wicked sometimes prosper. Don't you remember what the Psalms say? Do not envy the wicked when you see them prosper. Look at their end, and you'll realize it's not prosperity at all. It's, not, it's just a slow death sentence. That's all it is. But the righteous character of this man begins with a fundamental distinction of this. Verse 1, he fears the Lord. Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. It all begins right there. The fear of God. 
the fear of God. He's, he, he is, he's got a fear of his judgments, a fear of the consequences of breaking his holy law. And yet, this fear does not prohibit pleasure. For the righteous, it says, he greatly delights in his commandments. Greatly delights. Do you greatly delight in God's word? Greatly delight in it. He had the perfect balance of reverence and relish. He also promulgates his righteousness and his proven character to his succeeding generations. Verse 2, his descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. They inherit his blessedness as he teaches them the way of righteousness. One of the reasons why Paul must have picked this passage was because of its references to material blessings. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. His righteousness endures forever. And he's generous the very context we're looking at here. Verse 5, he gives, he shares, he lends. It is well with that man who is gracious and lends. I love it. And he will freely, he says he has in the, in the Septuagint there in verse 9 uh, of this verse, if you jump down to verse 9, it says, he has given freely to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And then the Septuagint says this, He has freely given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Well, same thing, same thing. Righteousness endures forever. Isn't that interesting? He has an eternal legacy of righteousness. Beautiful. His name will never perish. His cause, unlike the wicked, His desires will never perish. They will endure forever because He's righteous. He has righteous desires his righteousness will go on and on and on. His righteous character, I would even say, will intensify the longer he lives, on into eternity, for all eternity. He will only become, in a sense, more given over to righteousness. Beautiful. To the point that he is ultimately glorified. Beautiful. The example of the righteous man also teaches us, therefore, to trust God. He trusts in God. He puts his faith in God. He sa it says there in uh, verse 7, he says he will not fear evil tidings, evil news. You lost your job today. You see the economy is taking a, a dive. The stock market plummeted today. The Dow Jones is down, you know, whatever, 5,000 points. Who cares? It's up again tomorrow. His heart is steadfast. I love that. Trusting in the Lord. I can honestly say there's certain men in my life that I've seen over the years whose hearts are steadfast. They're immovable. They're not going anywhere. They're not tossed around by every wind of doctrine and by every circumstance that blows through their life. They're steadfast. Right? Isn't this a character that we want to have? Don't you want to be fortified? Like a, like a fortified city, impenetrable, impenetrable. Matter of fact, he goes on to say that very thing. Verse 6, he will never be shaken 
the righteous will be, his righteousness will be remembered forever. Again, again, again. He will never be shaken. I love it. Even in the midst of bad times, look at verse 4. He always finds a good way out. Or he always finds good in it. He says, light arises in the darkness. I love that. The righteous man, when he is surrounded by darkness, he's surrounded by dark providence, will rise with the help of God, with the grace of God, by the grace of God, with God's strength. He will rise again, get up to his feet. The righteous man may fall seven times, but he gets back up. And that's exactly the character that this man has. Spurgeon put it this way. Talking about this very verse, verse 4, he says, He will have his days of darkness, speaking of the righteous man. He may be sick and sorry, poor and pining. He might sigh and be filled with groanings and longings. As well as others, his former riches, they might take to themselves wings and fly away. While even his righteousness may be cruelly suspected. Boy, that is a, that is a thorn, isn't it? I think nothing vexed Job more than to have his close friends question his righteousness. Thus, the clouds may lower around him, but his gloom shall not last forever. The Lord will bring him light in due season, for as surely as a good man's sun goes down, it shall rise again. I love that because we are so easily discouraged. I love that because if some of you deal with depression, the darkness of melancholy, all of those things, discouragement, condemnation, it is a great promise to know that if we walk in the way of righteousness, we will, even in the midst of our darkness, rise again. So what am I saying in relationship to money? is that money and generosity and the principle of sowing and reaping and trusting God for what He gives you, abundance, all of that, in order for you to have a proper perspective of that, you need to be like the righteous man of Psalm 112. And if you are, then guess what? These things will naturally flow out of you. I love it. Finally, the righteous man, as is often the case when you look at the theology of the Psalms, he is constantly contrasted with the wicked. And in verse 10 of Psalm 112, it says, The desire of the wicked will perish. Their grasping for the wind will end. Their desires, their impulses, their lusts, the things they go after, they will never be fully realized. They will always be disappointed. They will always be put to shame. At the end of the day, the very things they were living for, they never found contentment in, and they never will. But it says in verse 5, it is well with the man who is gracious and lends, because you are like God. God is gracious, and when you are gracious like God, you will spread your gracious generosity to everyone around you. May God make us like this, brothers and sisters. And so then we end on theology proper. This is a call to imitate God, His attributes, His character, His nature. God will teach us how to live every time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, we just pray that in our giving, something like our giving, 
Even in that, Lord, and maybe even especially in that in some cases, Lord, you teach us so much about yourself, who you are, your glorious attributes, your glorious nature, the fact that you are gracious, the fact that you are generous, the fact that you provide even for the poor, the fact, Lord, that you take care of your people and that you replenish our storehouses only so that we can empty them again in acts of mercy and generosity. And so, God, give us faith. I pray you make us trust like the man in Psalm 112. Help us to trust in you. Help us not to be afraid of the news, what's coming on the horizon. Help us not to be afraid of the future like the Proverbs 31 woman. Help us to laugh, in fact, at the future. Help us not to care what the world around us is afraid about. Lord, keep us strong and steadfast in our heart. Help it not to be an outward show, but as the psalmist declares, let it be a steadfastness of the heart first and foremost. We can fool many people, but we can't fool you. And so, Lord, help us not to be fools in our own hypocrisy, but help us, Lord, to be genuine, to genuinely pursue the righteous way, the righteous path, I pray your people, your church here today, I pray that they would experience the wellness of what it means to walk in the path of righteousness. Thank you, Lord. We look forward to you providing for us and giving us opportunity to share. In Jesus' name, amen.